These stories are all true. A pastor is cutting his front lawn. He looks up from his task just in time to see a heavy dump truck back out of his neighbor's driveway, right over the neighbor's 18-month-old son, who had been squatting behind the huge tires. The pastor accompanies the hysterical mother and ashen father to the hospital in the ambulance. There is no hope for the little boy. He has been crushed almost beyond recognition. Where is God? After five years of marriage, Jane wakes up in the night to find her husband, Dan, poking her and pointing to his mouth. As she hauls herself out of sleep, she realizes that her husband has awakened to find that he cannot speak and he is badly frightened. A quick phone call to the doctor issues in a swift trip to the hospital. The next day, the surgeons operate for cancer of the brain. They cannot get much of it. The trauma of the surgery is worse. It wipes out all learned memory. Dan no longer knows how to read and write. He cannot recognize his infant son, yet somehow the operation has administered such a shock that the cancer stops growing. Dan's personality, however, has been altered. He is frustrated, angry, irritable, and needs someone to watch him 24 hours a day. After three years of minimal recovery, the cancer starts its insidious growth again and kills Dan four months later. Where is God? A tsunami of gigantic proportions caused by shifting plates in the ocean floor caused horrific damage in several countries and kills about 230,000 men, women, and children, mostly children. Where is God? The hand of God has fallen hard upon Naomi. She left her home in Bethlehem in Judah because of a famine in that region and relocated to Moab, a pagan nation, a nation who worships gods to whom children are sacrificed. She's endured the death of her husband, 10 years of childlessness for both her daughters-in-law, the death of both sons, leaving her with no men to look after her in her old age. And finally, the departure of her daughter-in-law, Orpah. One blow after another has caused Naomi to cry out, The hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. Where is Naomi's covenant-keeping God? The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Isn't this supposed to be his universe? How can things like this happen? Brothers and sisters, a lack of understanding the teachings, the doctrines of the Bible, particularly as it relates to suffering and evil, will sow great confusion and turmoil in our souls. Bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. We need to be informed by God's word, his revelation, and corrected by that revelation, ideally, ideally, before suffering strikes. Good teaching leads to good living. 
And what's so clearly taught in the book of Ruth is that all the calamities and sorrows of life are under the sway of God's sovereign providence, which is something Naomi believes theologically, but it's a truth that she's not responding to appropriately. She's not balancing out the sovereignty of God with the goodness of God and the love of God. She doesn't heed Deuteronomy 32.4. God is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. God is all unblemished goodness. There can never, ever be cause for bitterness against such a God. Yet Naomi is bitter. She tells all the women of Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi anymore. Tell me Mara. That means bitter because I am bitter. I'm full of bitterness. Now, Naomi will see in part God at work in the calamities that he's brought her way. That's what the final chapter of the book of Ruth is all about. But overall, overall, Naomi remains ignorant to God's greater good purposes in taking away her husband and her two sons. But we, we can see what God is doing because we're situated this side of the cross. In surprising ways, 1,000 years before Jesus, the book of Ruth glorifies his work of redemption. Ruth is about the work of God in the darkest of times to prepare the world for the glories of Jesus Christ. The painful events related in this book are part of a salvation historical trajectory which leads directly to our Savior from sin. But not one person in this story has any idea that these devastating details are, or events are pivotal for the accomplishment of their own eternal salvation. They don't see it. All the events in the book of Ruth are part of a God-ordained trajectory leading directly, directly to Jesus and his cross. Because it's at the cross where all the suffering, where all the sorrow, all the evil of this fallen world is put into its proper perspective and is utterly defeated. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised to life. Jesus has ascended to heaven. And Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, mediating his Father's sovereignty over this fallen world. Jesus, right now, is the supreme Lord of creation. And one day, when our Lord returns, our good creator will reclaim the entire created order, even though it's now tainted by sin. The Apostle John writes of that great day in Revelation 21, 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And that certain hope has been secured for us through what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, which is precisely the big picture that Naomi lacks, but which we possess through the witness of New Testament scripture. Beloved, we can have a more certain knowledge that in the darkest moments of life, God is plotting for his glory and our eternal good. We can be sure of it. And so in the midst of hardship, 
we, as Christians, we respond appropriately with obedience and in worship. Now, Ruth is an Old Testament historical narrative. That's its literary genre, which means we need to be reading this book in a way that points to Jesus. This book is not, first and foremost, a morality tale where Ruth and Boaz serve as exemplars of godly conduct. Act like Boaz. He was a godly man. Act like Ruth. She's a godly woman. Yet there's an element of that there, and we'd be foolish not to follow their examples in some of their behavior. But this story is about how Jesus, the Messiah, came to be born. All the other themes in this book are subordinated to that concern, even, even the theme of suffering. And everything in chapter 1 through to chapter 4, verse 20, is leading up to the last two verses of the genealogy of chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Turn there. Look at this. Everything is leading to these two verses, where we learn that Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of King David, the royal ancestor of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 18. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. That is the climax of the book. I mean, it's, it's in the middle of a genealogy, so it doesn't look like a great climax, but that is the climax of the book. And all four chapters need to be read in light of that climax. So let's pick up where we left last week. Chapter 1 concludes in verse 22 by informing us that it's the season of the barley harvest. And that verse anticipates the means by which Yahweh will provide for the two widows of our story. So let's see what the sovereign God has ordained. Point number one in your bulletins, God is sovereign. Ruth goes to glean and happens upon the field of Boaz, Elimelech's relative. Verse 1, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, you'll recall what we learned last week with my Count Dracula illustration, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, as we're reading this story, the author wants us to be thinking of King David, right? That's the whole story. King David, King David. How do we know that? Because the author twice points us to the origin of Elimelech's family in the opening two verses of this book. They are Bethlehemites from the clan of Ephrathah, the same tribe and clan as King David. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, introduces us to a man named Boaz. And here we read that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. They're both from the clan of Ephrathah. And the original readers would be thinking, aha, the same lineage as King David and the deceased Elimelech, the plot thickens. They would see that immediately. And, and that's what we need to be thinking too. Plus, Boaz here is described as a, a man of standing, which is a Hebrew phrase that speaks of strength, courage, success. He's a man of standing. Boaz is an admirable man. He's a worthy man. He's a successful man. So things aren't as bleak as they might seem, right? Here is mentioned a man of standing from the same clan as Naomi's deceased husband. Surely, surely 
good will come of this, right? Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And what we're seeing here is the social welfare system of ancient Israel in action. Widows without grown sons had nobody to care for them. Widows and orphans were helpless in this culture, but God had established a way in the law covenant of Moses whereby widows can have their needs met. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, this is on page 199 of your church Bible. I'll just read it to us, though. Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 21. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. But of course, Israelites often disobeyed these divine commands. Remember, this is a period of great, great wickedness in Israel's history. This is a time when covenant fidelity was not a high priority. Just read the book of Judges. It's the same time period. And farmers, to their thinking, had an excellent reason to disobey these commands. Following these divine commands cost landowners money, right? Every sheaf, every olive, every grape that was just left behind, that's precious money, (laughs) you know, slipping through their fingers. Let the widows and orphans shift for themselves. And notice something else. Ruth is the one here who takes the initiative to keep them both alive. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. They, they have no food, so Ruth goes out and does something about it. She's taking care of her aged, widowed mother-in-law. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Notice the repetition, who was from the clan of Elimelech. That is the same clan as her deceased father-in-law. And did you notice that interesting turn of phrase in the ESV translation? It reads, Ruth happened to come across the field of this man. Uh, In the NIV, it's as it turned out, she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. The Hebrew twice uses a word that can be translated Her chance chanced upon. That's a rhetorical device used by the author. By attributing Ruth's good fortune to chance, the phrase points ironically to its opposite. Ruth found herself working in Boaz's field because God is gracious and sovereign. God is busy working behind the scenes. He is pictured as directing and controlling the situation through his gracious providence. Proverbs twenty twenty four, a person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? And God has directed Ruth's steps to the field of Boaz, a family relative. And it's by this means that God will restore her fortunes and secure her eternal salvation and ours as well. Because Ruth happened to go into this field that day. I'll be 47 
uh, in February, which makes me one of the old fogies here today. Uh, sometimes I get to reflecting on just how radically different my life is compared to how I figured it would be when I was a younger man. Uh, what I wanted my life to be, what I assumed my life would be. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I love my life. I truly, I truly feel like God's spoiled child. But being the pastor of a small church in Toronto is not what I was expecting or hoping for when I was a younger man. Uh, I had other plans in life, very, very lofty plans. Some of you guys know what those plans were. In fact, when the, what the Lord has graciously entrusted to me to serve him and to glorify his name, this is the very thing I dreaded most when I was 22. I was so sinfully deluded at that age. I was consumed with idolatrous notions of success. And what I fantasized God's plans for me might be were quite impressive, let me tell you. You would have been honored just to be in the same room as I was if those plans had come to fruition. And that sin was so all-consuming that if I had seen in a crystal ball what God actually had in store for me 25 years down the road, I would have been deeply bitter and resentful toward God. I wonder, am I alone in my perversity? Perhaps you, friend, are quite surprised at what your marriage is like. It's a lot harder than you thought it would be. There's more sin, and you find yourself praying often for grace just to love your spouse. Maybe you're shocked at your relationship status. You're single at 30, 40, 50. You're divorced. You're widowed. That was never part of your life plan. And yet, God sovereignly decreed it. Perhaps your career hasn't panned out the way you expected. You're in a job you don't particularly enjoy for little pay, and now there's really no way out. You're too old. And so you're constantly tempted to grumble and complain and be unappreciative. Perhaps your investments haven't panned out. You worry about money. You're anxious about money. The future is uncomfortable to think about. Perhaps your ministry isn't as widespread and as effective as you assume the Lord would grant in return for your faithful service. Yet the pragmatic, compromising church down the street has to beat people away with a stick every Sunday morning. Perhaps your artistic aspirations have fizzled. Except for your mother, people couldn't care less about your music, your paintings, your novel, your acting skills. And now that you're older, the real world is battering down your door and options are limited. Perhaps your health is poor. You live with constant pain. You never anticipated that. Perhaps your sexual orientation is something you never saw coming or assumed you would grow out of. Yet God has said, keep the thorn. I'll supply the grace. Bloom where I've planted you. Brother, sister, you're I want to ask, are you in a place where you know God is operating behind the scenes, directing your steps? Are you in a place where you can thank God for not giving you what you wanted when you wanted it? 
What a blessing that is to be able to see that. By, by God's grace, I can thank God. He's directed my steps and loved me enough not to give me my heart's desire. That's something that comes with having a few more birthdays, I think, maybe. Uh, some Christian maturity. You can look back on your life and go, ah, <laughs> the Lord stopped that. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. God took away a lot of stuff that at the time I thought made my life sing. For his glory, not the ease of my comfort. For his glory, not the fulfillment of my love life. For his glory, not for the fame of my name. For his glory, not to ensure that all my desires and plans are speedily fulfilled. And as he was faithful then, so he is faithful now during present hardship, as he will be in future trials. I've already seen that tested in my life. It's been proved. I know. I know it's true. It's all part of his perfect plan that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Though he slays me, yet I will trust him. But those are some of the hardest lessons I've ever had to work through in my Christian life. And this year, the Lord has given me a whole new crop of lessons. It's happening all the time. This past week was a doozy for our marriage. But I would also say hardship, suffering, lack are like steroids for spiritual growth. Certain kinds of Christian maturity are bred only through adversity. And God always, always gives grace. God's grace is sufficient for his children to die to self-interest and live instead for God's interests, whatever they may be. And beloved, that knowledge enables us to live lives of risk-taking faith. Risk-taking faith. Because we know God always directs our steps in a way that brings him most glory. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Which takes us to our second point. God is sovereign. Ruth under the wings of God. Look at verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Man, what a great work environment that is. <laughs> what a great boss can you just imagine going into work and that's how your manager talks to you at the back and forth? The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. <laughs> Sounds like the millennium or something. But this greeting is a testament to Boaz's character, isn't it? His love for God has saturated down to the, the everyday details of his life, even down to how he greets his employees. And remember, this is happening during the most godless time in Israel's history. Verse 5, Boaz, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And as a reader, all right, as the sentimental romantic in us interprets these events, this is the part where we start thinking, oh yeah. 
the rich older man, right? The man of standing in the community. He has just come to his field to see how things are getting along. And he's laid his eyes on the beautiful Ruth. And he's asking questions about her. God is sovereign. This story is going to be wrapped up in no time. And that's what we're supposed to think. Which is why the last verse of this chapter is so confusing. Look at verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. What? (laughs) Seven weeks later, after the barley and wheat harvests are complete, after two months of Ruth daily working like a pauper in the fields of Boaz, she and Naomi are still in the same situation? Nothing's happening? Why doesn't Boaz take some action? Right? Mr. Darcy would have, surely, right? He would have swept her off to Pemberley long before. <clears throat> Folks, I'm just as much a sucker for a good love story as the next fellow. And the proof I would offer this is that I've actually, I've pretty much read and enjoyed all Jane Austen's novels. You know, I've read Pride and Prejudice four times. So I'm not saying this because I'm a heartless misanthrope. But we need to pull back here with our interpretations of love at first sight. The book of Ruth is not a love story. Oh, just get that across. It is not a love story, okay? I I once listened to a Ruth sermon series by a well-known pastor who shall remain remain nameless, where Boaz's interaction with Ruth in chapter 2 was preached as a step-by-step guide as to how to get a wife, as well as the definition of what biblical love and biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is like. That is a load of hogwash. Boaz shows Ruth a lot of kindness in this chapter, but it's not because he fell in love with her the moment he saw her bent over in the hot Judean sun, her hair in a bun, no makeup on, covered in dirt, sweating like a mule in her filthy peasant garment, right? Now, Boaz hasn't asked this, but the foreman volunteers some information that attests to the quality of Ruth's character. Verse 7, she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And here we see the kind of woman Ruth is. She asks permission to glean behind the reapers, even though it was her legal right, according to the law covenant of Moses. Second, we see here that she's a diligent worker. She's been laboring all morning, bent over all day, picking up barley gleanings with hardly any break. She's just picking up straw like this all all day long. That's hard work. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And, And I think that little aside just speaks volumes about the degradation of the culture. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So Boaz is being extraordinarily generous. He's allowing Ruth to glean an area of the field that's normally off limits to gleaners. Skip down to verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. 
even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. First off, Boaz invites Ruth, a Moabite, to the intimacy of the noon meal. That's a big deal. She's a Gentile. Then he gives her more roasted grain than she can eat. She even has some left over after eating her fill. And when Ruth begins gleaning after lunch, Boaz orders his workers to let her glean between the sheaves without any trouble. He even commands them to pull out stalks from the handfuls the men cut and just leave them behind for her. So Ruth isn't really gleaning at all, is she? She's harvesting. Why has Boaz done this? Ruth is baffled. She has no idea. She doesn't know Boaz from Adam. She didn't expect to find any special treatment, and and she's humbly astonished. She's received extraordinary favor and privileges from a landowner who treats her like a member of his family. But the significance of Boaz's identity remains hidden to Ruth at this point. At at this point, we, the readers, uh, we know who Boaz is, but Ruth does not. So go back to verses 10 to 13. This is the most important part of the whole chapter. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have reassured me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So when Ruth asks why she's being shown grace, Boaz answers, because you love Naomi so much that you were willing to leave your mother and father and serve her in a strange land. And verse 12 is the Mount Everest of the section. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is saying in verse 12 that God, Yahweh, is really the one who is rewarding Ruth for her love for Naomi. And Boaz is merely God's instrument in that blessing. But it's really God. And this, this wing reference is very, very important, and I want you to store it away in your memory banks. If you have your own Bible with you, you may want to underline that verse or highlight it on your Bible app. Uh, it comes up again next week in chapter 3. May you richly be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is picturing God as a great winged eagle and Ruth as a threatened little eaglet coming to find safety under the eagle's wings. Boaz is telling Ruth, you have committed yourself to Yahweh. You have abandoned your home and your gods and have entrusted yourself 
into Yahweh's care. You have taken refuge under Yahweh's wings. You have esteemed Yahweh's protection superior to all others, which has emboldened you to take this massive leap of faith. Ruth, because you have come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh, therefore, I will pray he will vindicate, he will vindicate the power and the grace of his wings and give you what you need. Brothers and sisters, this attitude, this stance towards God's sovereignty should have a massive, it should have massive, massive implications for how we live for God. How we should view risk as citizens and ambassadors of God's kingdom. How we should think of and respond to the discomforts and hardships God sovereignly brings into our lives. Right down to the most devastating loss and profound grief a Christian can experience. It's, it's all here. It's all right here. We, God's new covenant children, are the little eaglets. And he, the covenant-keeping God, is the eagle who has spread his protective wings over us. And he will protect and sustain us for the sake of his glory. His holy name is at stake. His reputation is on the line. But the mistake that we can make... And it's a mistake prompted by our selfishness is to think that this means, well, that that means no harm now can befall me. This is my ticket to the luxury cruise, right? I'm under the eagle's wings. I will now endure no hardship in life. No, it means rather that no matter what God brings our way, even catastrophic loss, he will sustain us by his grace. And he will vindicate the power and the grace of his wings and give us what we need to endure to finish the race well and bring him glory. And again, that knowledge enables us, brothers and sisters, to take bold risks for God. To live a life of selfless, risk-taking love for others. And bold dependence upon God, just like Ruth. Ruth knew what she was doing on the road back in chapter 1. Ruth declared Yahweh to be her God, in spite of Naomi saying that God's hand had gone out against her. Ruth swore by Yahweh's name that that only death would separate her from Naomi. She swore in his name that that was the case, despite an almost certain, certain future of poverty and widowhood and childlessness. Ruth would stay with and provide for her mother-in-law. She swore in Yahweh's name. Even though she's a young woman, she commits herself to the life of an old woman rather than search for a husband. Ruth has chosen a female in a world where life depends upon men. How can she do that? By the culture's standards, it's such a radical, radical decision. Is she exceptionally brave? Is she exceptionally dumb? No. Ruth the Moabite trusts in Yahweh's sovereign providence. Ruth the Moabite trusts in Yahweh's sovereign providence. She has placed herself under his wings. And so her priorities aren't shaped by the priorities and fears of her culture, but rather on selfless denial and trust in her God. 
We used to sing a song at New City. It's been on the back burner for a few years now, but all I really need is your grace. That's Ruth's song. All I really need is your grace, Yahweh. Not a husband to provide for me, not money, not false gods. All I need to know is that you are near me, that I'm under your sovereign wings. All I need is you. Loved ones, we can find it so confusing to look at this world and all the ephemeral temporary trash it offers in place of God. It can, it can all look so real, right? It can look so good, so lasting, so capable of bestowing happiness and comfort and stability. Oh, if I only had more of it all, then I could really get it on. My life would be easier. I wouldn't have to depend upon the mercies of God as I rest under his wings. That stuff's, that's all nice in theological theory, and it's nice to have as there is a backstop if, God forbid, I lose my job, or the economy tanks, or I become ill, but it's something I'm loath to learn experientially for myself. I'd rather live under the wings of good health and money in the bank. Give me that every time. And leave the sovereign wings of God for Christian suffering in the Sudan and for Sunday sermons soon forgotten. That is a sinfully repulsive mentality that God will not accept. It's a clear variance with his revelatory word. It's an attack on the truth that everything is to be for his glory. And God won't allow his true sons and daughters to wallow in that death mentality indefinitely. He's too jealous for the glory of his own name. And he loves us too much. To rest secure under the wings of a sovereign God who has given us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. The son who rose from death and now reigns at his Father's right hand, and who, along with the Father, has given us the Holy Spirit. The Son who is returning to consummate his eternal kingdom. That puts everything into its proper perspective. That's the new covenant antidote for this sinful mentality. It's the gospel itself. And that's a revelatory insight Ruth never enjoyed. But this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we do enjoy it. And that's truth that we need to preach to our hearts again and again and again, New City. The certain hope secured for us through what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection. We're under the wings of that sovereign, loving God. And how our Savior, Jesus, came to be born, the operations of God's providential control over events 1,000 years before the eternal word became flesh, that's the focus of the final two chapters, two sermons from the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask, we pray, make this book live to us. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. For Jesus' sake, amen.